every breath that we get to take is because of his goodness to us. God, as, uh, as it says in your word, in you we live and move and have our being. And God, that is right down to the very breath that we take. And God, you gave us breath and you made us, Lord, in your image so that we would reflect your image that with our breath and everything that we are and everything that we have, we would worship you. And so God, today, would you um, cause our hearts to worship if they're not in that place? Whether you have to open the eyes of our heart to see you and all that you are, all that you've done for us. God, whether there's things in our lives, maybe we're in a place where we just uh, need to repent. And what a gift repentance is, God, that we can leave our life of selfishness and pride and sin. We can return to the arms of our Father who made us and loves us, delights in us. You sing over us. So God, may the rest of this time be a time where your word through your spirit goes deep in our hearts to make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Everybody said, amen. Guys, can be seated. Yeah, I definitely stayed up a little too late last night. <laughs> Anybody else or not? <laughs> We've been saying for 20 years, can we ever have nice things? <laughs> Why can't we? Anyway. Well, hey, we've uh, entered this Christmas season that is historically called Advent. It's part of the Christian calendar. Uh, Advent is a Latin term. The Greek term is uh, parousia. Uh, Those are actually technical terms uh, that come out of uh, the first century uh, that were applied actually to the kings, namely the Caesars. Um, Whenever the Caesar would make his rounds. Sometimes they would just, you know, visit uh, cities and towns. Uh, When they would visit a town or a city, that was called a parousia or uh, an advent, the coming of the king. So, of course, you can understand how uh, this word, uh, Christians embraced it, uh, because that's what Christmas is. It is celebrating the coming of the king, our king, the king of all kings. So as we uh, participate in the Christian calendar of Advent, we're today actually going to look at God's calendar because I don't know if you know this, but God actually gave his people a calendar, a calendar that he instructed. Um, He filled uh, their calendar with with these holy days, uh, days that they were to set apart. That's from which we get the word holiday. Uh, Today we're going to look at what I think and what the Bible thinks is the greatest of all holy days that God instructs. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, because this is uh, the story from which this holiday emerges. Exodus chapter 12. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you, the first month, the first month of your year. Uh, This is actually their fourth month, but they're about to have 
a spiritual birthday, and so now all of a sudden, this fourth month is going to become the first month. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share it with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. And you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you must take them or can take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. And when all the Israel members of the community of Israel at that time must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood put it on the sides and tops of the doorposts of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and the matzah, the bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And on that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, and the blood will be a sign for you on the household where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think this is a story that most of us are familiar with. Um, It's made it into our folklore. Uh, Hollywood has done its own renditions of the story. Um, Let me just start, first of all, with, with, with the context in which this story um, emerges. Going all the way back to Abraham, because this is when God's plan to redeem and restore a lost, broken, sinful world that he loves, it all goes back to Abraham. It goes back to God's promise to Abraham to give Abraham a land and a people, both which will be called Israel. Because through Israel... God is going to unleash his new creation project to fulfill what he said to Abraham. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham, through your family. And blessed doesn't mean just that some niceties will befall people. Blessed means to be restored. It means to be healed. It means to be resurrected. So that all happens in the the first book of our Bible. In Genesis, when you get to the second book of the Bible, which we are in right now, Exodus, God's promises, right there in chapter 1, are are coming to fruition. Abraham's family has become so great, so numerous. But they're slaves. They're slaves in Egypt. In fact, the word for Egypt in the Hebrew is Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means to be walled in. This is why the Bible, whenever it talks about Egypt, it often says the house of bondage or the house of slavery. 
So you know the story. God uh, comes to a man named Moses. Moses is is a man who's raised in Pharaoh's household, uh, but has become this runaway, living as a Bedouin in the desert. His life is at a dead end, but God comes to him and says, Moses, you are my man. I'm going to use you to set my people free from bondage. We all know the story. Uh, After that, the 10 plagues. Each plague is sent by God. And I, I want us to know even about the plagues. The plagues are more than just these awesome, dramatic displays of God's power. Through the plagues, God is actually declaring war on all the gods of Egypt. For instance, the first plague, the Nile. Uh, to the Egyptians, the Nile is so much more than a river. The Nile is, is deity. It's divine. It's, it's one of the primary gods they worship because it's the source of all their life. So when God turns the Nile to blood, uh, that spells the death to this god and, and so on and so on with, with the other plagues. Because through the plagues, God is showing himself, I am God alone. And even Pharaoh's magicians, they're the first to recognize that the plagues are the finger of God. And God is sending these plagues. He says this over and over again so that the world will know that I am Lord. And all these plagues are building to the last plague. And what's the last plague? Well, look at chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one last plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And then picking up in verse 4, the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of even the cattle as well. It's the plague of the firstborn. And after last week, if you were here, I, I, I would hope that you better understand what, what this plague is. This is more than a plague. This is the judgment of God that is now falling on Egypt. And God is so many things. But one of the things that God is, he is just. And when you think judgment, you need to think about a just God who is bringing justice who is purging the world of evil. He's making everything right. And now God has already, as as a just God, hardwired his justice in the universe. For instance, uh, the Bible says, God will not be mocked. Whatever a person sows, also shall they reap. Or as we say, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And you can apply choose to sin, choose to suffer to a life. You can apply it to a marriage. You can apply it to a family. You can apply it to an institution. 
You can apply it to a whole nation. When a nation sins, it will suffer because God will not be mocked. That's all part of the justice that God has hardwired into his world. But the Bible also speaks about a day, a specific day. Oftentimes it's called the day of the Lord. This final judgment, when God will finally enact justice once and for all, when he will purge the world of all of its evil. Now just imagine, if that day, was today, that today God would come, make everything right, and purge the world of all evil. In one sense, we'd say, wow, that would be incredible. But if we're honest, we would also know (laughs) That evil is, it's not just something that's out there. That, that, that evil is in me. I mean, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it so well. He said, the line that separates good and evil, that, doesn't, that line does not pass through states. It doesn't pass uh, between classes. It doesn't pass between political parties. He says that line dividing good and evil runs through every human heart. And because of this, who can stand before the Lord? And see, this is what God is telling Moses. He's telling Moses, look, I, I, I am unleashing a judgment day upon Egypt, a day when I'm going to enact justice, when I'm going to purge Egypt of all of its evil. And, and just think about even the hideous evil that is within Egypt. I mean, we know it alone from the biblical narrative. I mean, Pharaoh himself has already turned the Nile to blood by throwing all the, the Hebrew male babies into it. And this is why God says in, in chapter 11, verse 6, when he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come in my judgment of the firstborn. And then in verse uh, 6, he says, there will be such loud wailings throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. And that word for wailings, loud wailings, the Hebrew word zakah, it, it, it literally means the screams of someone who is in horror. And God tells Moses, this is going to be for all of Egypt. No one will be immune from the lowest to the highest, from the slave to Pharaoh. It's going to fall on everyone, both Egyptians and Hebrews. And at this point, Moses must be horrified. But then God, in the next verse, gives Moses good news, gospel. He says, my judgment will not touch the Israelites. And not only will Israel be spared, saved, but Israel will be set free from Egypt, from bondage. And here's where we need to ask ourselves. What saves Israel? Because if if, if you think right now that God is looking down on Egypt, And he's saying, bad Egyptians, good Hebrews. Then you're not reading the story right. What saves Israel is not that they're the good guys. 
It's a lamb. He saves and redeems Israel through a lamb. And let's go to the story in chapter 12. Uh, Because even to this day, if you ask a Jew, uh, give me your definition of salvation, their definition is always going to go right back to this story, this story of what we today call Passover. And Passover, as we're going to learn, is all about a lamb. God's salvation is all about a lamb. Now listen to God's specific instruction. Starting in verse 3, he says, On the tenth day, each man is to take a lamb for his household. So it's not one lamb per person, it's one lamb per family. Now in our world, everything is about the individual. In this world, it's all about the family. And there's another thing I want us to see here. Whose responsibility is it to provide the lamb? It's the father's responsibility. It's the father's responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the government's responsibility. It's not the school's responsibility. It is the father's responsibility to provide the lamb. Then notice verse four. If your family is too small for one lamb, then you are to join with your neighbors. Because not one morsel of this lamb is to be wasted, and this is a lamb that is to be shared. And then verse five, they don't get to just pick any lamb. They have to look at their flock and they have to select a lamb that is perfect in every way. And it has to be one year old. Let me show you what a one-year-old lamb looks like. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. <laughs> um, what's, the, what's the next instruction? In verse 6, my translation says, you shall keep it. The NIV says, take care of it. Okay, that lamb comes in your house on the 10th day, according to verse 3. It's going to be there until the 14th. That's four days where where God says you are to keep it. Now, the word for keep in Hebrew is hayah. Hayah means either to be or to become. God's instructing them, bring the lamb into your household almost like a family pet, you have four days to become that lamb. To identify with that lamb. To spend time with that lamb. And and, and why would God instruct that? Because this lamb is going to be your lamb. That lamb is going to bear the justice of God in your place so that you can be spared. After four days of this, At twilight, dusk, God says the lamb is to be slaughtered. None of the bones are to be broken. Then God says in verse 7, he says, collect the blood of that lamb and then make a paintbrush 
God even specifies the kind of paint, paintbrush they're to use. If you go down to verse 22, uh, it's to be from a hyssop branch. And you're to take that hyssop branch paintbrush and paint that blood around your doorframe. Then verse eight, the lamb is to be eaten. So you are eating the lamb that has just come into your house for four days. And again, with God, uh, salvation is not just something he wants us to believe. It's something he literally wants us to eat, to digest it, to become it. In fact, God even instructs in verse 11 how they are to eat the lamb. They are to eat the lamb in haste and being prepared to leave their house for a long journey. Why this instruction? Because God's salvation, it's coming. It's imminent. It's going to be fast. And they need to be ready when it comes. And after all this instruction, God then says, this is the Lord's Passover. And that's why to this day, this is called Passover. Now, Passover is our English word. In Hebrew, it's, it's the word Pesach. Pesach is also found in other contexts in the Bible. Uh, one of the places where it's found, because this really gets at its original meaning, is Isaiah 31, verse 5, where it says, Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it, he will deliver it, and he will pass over it, and he will rescue it. Pesach means to protect. Pesach means to cover. And so when, when, when God says, this is the Lord's Passover, he's saying, this is the Lord's protection. This is the Lord's shelter. This is the Lord, Lord's covering. And what is the covering? Verse 23, it's the blood of the lamb. It's the blood of the lamb that's painted on the doorpost. That's why God even has to give this instruction in verse 22. God says, when my judgment comes down, don't you even step outside your house. <laughs> why can't they go outside? Because to leave the house means that they are going to leave the covering. They're no longer under God's protection, the protection being the blood of that lamb. Now, here's where we need to ask the question, why a lamb? Well, to the ancients, a lamb was the purest picture of purity and innocence. Look at this lamb. I love my dog. <laughs> but my dog will bark at you. He might even bite you. Not a lamb. Now, also, let's ask that question, why a lamb from, from, from the narrative of the Bible? And as badly as I want to run this to Jesus, I think we first need to go back because the first hints of a lamb uh, take place already in Eden right after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, at that moment, God said to them, you eat of this tree and you will surely die. They eat, but they don't die. Why? Well, they're hiding. Why are they hiding? Because now they know they're naked. They know their shame. And God's about to approach. And they're hiding from him. 
And what God does in that moment, instead of killing them and giving them what they deserve, he gives them covering, shelter from animal skins. And we are already into into gospel kinds of things. And then we, we, we have a good idea as to what kind of animal skins they are because then the very next story, Cain and Abel are offering their best to God and Abel's animal sacrifice is acceptable and, and Cain's isn't. So that too suggests a lamb. And then the actual first usage of the word lamb in our Bibles is from our text last week, Genesis 22. Remember the story when God comes to Abraham, take your son, your your beloved son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And again, as we learned last week, Abraham did not hear God say, hey, Abraham, I want you to go out and murder your son. Instead, what Abraham heard is, Abraham, it's time to pay up. Because the ancients had a whole different emphasis on God than we sometimes do. The ancients first and foremost saw God as holy, holy, holy. And in light of this holy God, they knew that they were not. And so they could never look at their lives and and, and think that God owes me this or that God owes me that. Instead, they looked at their lives and they looked at their lives in light of this holy God and they just knew it is I who owe God. In fact, I owe God something greater than my own life. It's the debt of sin. And think about it. Someone as faithful as Abraham, you could even make the argument maybe right now that he is the most righteous person to ever walk the face of the earth. And yet in light of this holy, holy God, Abraham knows he's a debtor. It's time to pay up. Okay, God. And as Abraham is walking his son Isaac, Isaac says to his father, Dad, we have everything for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And that is the first time in our Bible we have the word lamb. Where's the lamb, Dad? And all Abraham can say in this moment is God will see to it. And we, as we learned last week, God did see to it, but it wasn't so much that ram. But God was looking into the future. And the reason why Isaac was spared that day is because God was looking into the future, a lamb that wouldn't be. And now we come to our story today. And God says to Moses, Moses, my judgment is coming down. It's a judgment Day, it's time to pay up. You and all of Egypt owe me something greater than your own life. And what saves Israel on this judgment day? Please don't think it's their goodness. It's not that they're morally or spiritually superior to the Egyptians. The Bible says this. In so many ways, no one is righteous. No one. Egyptians, Israelites, they're not righteous. Jews, Christians, Muslims, agnostics, atheists, religious people, irreligious people. 
Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, communists, capitalists, rich, poor. No one's righteous. And we need to stop dividing the world into good people and bad people and then trying to massage this narrative that makes ourselves part of the good people. The only people that play such games are the Pharisees. And there are a lot of Pharisees in the world today. Thankfully, not as many in the church. And right now, if you and I think that we are entitled to anything right now, we're not a debtor. We're not seeing ourselves properly. If you think you're better than any other person on the face of this world, anyone, you're not a debtor. If you're judgmental, if you're critical, if you cancel people out, you absolutely cannot see yourself as a debtor. When people like to slander me, call me this, call me that, sometimes in my mind I'm just thinking, really, is that all? I'm far worse than that. <clears throat> I'm a debtor. I'm looking at debtors. And then to think in light of that, that God in his perfect justice and amazing grace, he provides a way, an exodus. And what is the way? God says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood of that lamb, I will Pesach, I will protect I'll cover. I mean, it's like, it, it, it's like in, it, on one hand, as, as, as God's judgment is just coming down in, in, in all its fury, it's like his other hand is, is used to protect and to spare and to save. I remember uh, to, to the ancient world, uh, blood equals life. As the Bible says, the life is in the blood. So what's painted around the doorpost is, is the lamb's life because it's the lamb's life uh, for the life of the firstborn. The reason why the life of the firstborn is spared is because a lamb's life isn't. And there it is, the lamb's life painted all over the doorpost. And just imagine that night. This lamb has been a part of your family now for four days. And now it comes that time where it's time to slit its throat, collect its blood. I just know how this will go in my home. Uh, I know there's hunters here that are literally, you don't have a category for what I'm going to say right now, okay? Um, but I literally, when there's insects in our house, I usually collect them and throw them outside. Um, we, in our growing up days, um, we, we lived on a farm, but just like someone might have a basketball, that doesn't make them a basketball player, just because we had a barn and 10 acres did not make us farmers at all. 
But one summer, my brother and I decided we wanted to have cows. And so we got three cows. And I just remember going down, and uh, it was our job to feed the cows and all that. I'd see my brother in the barn. He'd be scratching their head, and that head would be going up and down. And it's like these cows became our pets. (laughs) Uh, But the problem with people that don't know how to farm, these these cows, we couldn't keep them in our fences either. Um, I mean, so many times my dad would yell down to us downstairs, they're out again, the cows are out. And time after time, we'd be out there just like this, trying to like herd them in. But over time, these cows got more and more aggressive. And <laughs> at least me, I got more scared. When I had horns, uh, they got so spooked. We finally had to bring our neighbor in who was a farmer. And as I remember this time, we were trying to herd the cow in, and that cow charged him, pinned him against the barn, and he's like, all right, it's time. Got a shotgun out and shot it. Watched it. And we didn't just have hamburger for a year. (laughs) That cow's name was Smokey. We had Smokey Burgers. So when I put myself in this story, and then with my own family, um, especially when my kids were young, uh, but maybe even now, I I mean, I can just hear like, Dad, you can't kill that lamb. (laughs) What's this lamb done, Dad, to deserve this? And at some point, I would have to tell them, it's either the lamb or it's us. So imagine that experience killing that lamb, collecting its blood, painting that blood on the doorframe of your house. Sobering, yet meaningful. Then throughout the night, the screams and the wails that are going on. And to wake up the next morning and to find out that in every household in Egypt, there is either a dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. And then to step outside of your house and to join your tribe and, and all the tribes of people and, and to walk out of that place saved, spared, free, redeemed. And why? Because a lamb's blood protected us and sheltered us. And soon after this event, God is going to give his people what they call to this day Torah. We call it the first five books of the Bible. It's part of what we just read. And in Torah, God's going to give them instructions on how they are to walk with God, how they are to walk out God in a way that they... uh, are, are, are a light to the nations. And, and, and part of Torah, part of God's instruction is that Israel is to immerse themselves in remembering God's deliverance. Look at verse 14. Literally reads, this is a memorial day. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate this memorial day as a festival, a feast to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then God gives even more instruction about what this is to be. And he 
in several other parts, gives instructions as to what this feast that they come to call Passover looks like. And here they celebrate it year after year. And they celebrate it almost the way it happened on the first half Passover. Uh, it's, the, the celebration is centered around a lamb. It's one lamb per family. It's a lamb without blemish. It's a lamb that's brought into the household four days before it is slaughtered. Uh, it is brought to the temple, uh, to that place where it's slaughtered. It's prepared there. Then it's brought back to the house. Uh, there it is cooked. And as it comes out on the table, before they eat the lamb, uh, the grandpa gets up. He retells the story of Exodus, how many, many generations ago, how God spared them, how God protected them, redeemed them, saved them through the blood of a lamb. And I'll tell you what's so amazing about this holiday is right here in the text in verse 14 and in other places, God calls this holiday, a, in Hebrew, a moed, which we translate feast or festival. But it actually means something closer to a dress rehearsal. Because this holiday isn't meant to just point them backwards to the first Passover where they remember that, but it also at the same time points them forward the way a dress rehearsal points someone forward to the main event. And in essence, it's pointing them forward to a greater lamb, a greater salvation, a greater deliverance, a greater exodus. And this is why you need to see the amazing thing it is when John the Baptist says, behold him. Behold the Lamb of God. Because Jesus came to the world to become the Lamb, to be the Passover Lamb. And what we call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper is actually a Passover meal. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the centerpiece of this meal shifted from a lamb, eating lamb, to actually drinking cups of wine. And you ask, why did they shift it from a lamb to, to cups of wine? Well, because all of God's instruction about the lamb uh, it all went through the temple. They had to bring the lamb to the temple. Well, what happens when the temple is destroyed? Well, uh, they thought about that and they thought maybe we shouldn't center the meal anymore on a lamb. Instead, how about if we drink wine because wine can represent that blood that we painted on the door and through that blood we were saved and redeemed and spared. And you realize that Jesus at the Last Supper, this Passover meal, took the cup of wine that represents that lamb's blood that covered them and protected them and spared them, saved them. And he raised it and he said, this cup, this now represents my blood. In other words, the main event is here. I am the lamb of God. 
And then when you read the Gospels and you see that on that Passover, just like the first Passover, what we now call Good Friday, even though in many ways it was Bad Friday, because that night the world went dark again and the plagues of God's judgment came down. The prophets spoke about this judgment day. They talked about it in terms, uh, the moon would, would, would turn red and the stars would fall from the sky. And you too adds a little piece to that over one tree hill, over one tree hill, over one cross hill. But on that judgment day, This is mind-boggling. This is the most stunning reality there is. On this judgment day, instead of God's judgment falling on the world, all his wrath, his divine justice towards all sin, it fell. On Christ. And just like the Nile, the Son of God, the darling of heaven, is turned to blood. He's laid upon the wood. And if you're still in your mind wrestling with how can a just God be merciful and how can a merciful God still be just? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter picks up on this in, in, in 1 Peter 1. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This lamb was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. It's mind-boggling to think that before God even made the world, before he created this beautiful creature that we call a lamb, and he created that lamb to help tell a story, but that before God created the world, this, this good, beautiful world, he knew that it was going to go bad. He knew that Adam and Eve would blow it. He knew that we would blow it. He knew that evil would sink deep in our hearts. He knew that his good creation would fall into ruin. And he knew the only way he could make it right to set it free from bondage to decay, to deliver it from all evil, to deliver us from evil It'd be through a lamb. And he would be that lamb. And this is why Revelation says that they sing a new song in heaven. It's, they're singing it right now. You are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation Good Friday is Passover. And Passover is salvation. And that salvation is through a lamb. And that lamb is God's son.
And that Passover still points forward. There's still an ultimate judgment day that awaits. A great day of the Lord. Listen now, Revelation 6 describes this day. I watched as a lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come, Perusia, Advent. And I watched as he opened the sixth seal. It was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us for the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Are you prepared for this day? Do you know that it has nothing to do with how good you are? Exodus 12, verse 13. God says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood of the lamb, my judgment will pass over. I will protect you. I will cover you. I will redeem you. And see, for the one who's in Christ, for all the debtors in this room whose hope is in Christ, our judgment day actually happened. It happened 2,000 years ago on One Tree Hill. Have you beheld the Lamb? Are you covered in his blood? Is your life hidden in him? Have you placed your trust, your hope, your life in his provision? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And right now we're going to prepare to take communion. You can't come to this as a Pharisee. You just can't. You come to this as a debtor. Let's prepare our hearts. And God, right now, I just, uh, as we prepare our hearts, God, I pray Paul's prayer, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart, God. God, that we could see how far and wide and deep is your love that is in Jesus Christ. Because God, we are preparing ourselves to eat real food. And the food that we are about to eat is the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. A love that Paul says, nothing in all creation can separate us from this love.